Our study today is lesson number 130, and I have entitled it The Widow's Might. I want you to open up your Bibles to two locations. We'll be both in Mark 12, verses 41 to 44, and also in Luke 21. I'll start out in Mark, so find Mark 12, but also put a little marker or keep your finger over in Luke 21 because the widow's might account is given by two witnesses, Mark and Luke, and we'll be going back and forth between the two of them. Now, because we haven't been here for a long time, let's have a quick little review of where we are in our chronological study of the Lord's life. Where are we? Well, we're on the Passion Week, and we will be on the Passion Week for the remainder of the study although we will discuss some of his post-resurrection appearances as well. But um, we're on the Passion Week. Now, do you remember Sunday? Sunday began the Passion Week. Sunday was the day the Lord Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the colt of an ass and presented himself officially to Israel, fulfilling many Old Testament prophecies, including Daniel's prophecy, the 70, the great weeks, 70 great weeks prophecy that... They could have calculated to the very day the Messiah would arrive and officially present himself to the, to the nation. That was Palm Sunday. We call it the day of presentation. Sunday night, he retreated to where? To spend the night? Bethany, two miles away in Bethany, where he spent the night with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, who he had already raised from the dead maybe like three or four weeks earlier. That was the end of Sunday. Then Monday morning he arose even before the roosters did their little He got up very early, and I know because we now have roosters again at my home. I love that sound. You know, there's just something about it. It makes you feel like, you know, this country living is so wholesome or something. But um, he got up early that morning to go back to Jerusalem, and on his way they passed a fig tree, a fruitless fig tree in the little village of Bethpage, and he cursed it. That was not like the Lord. That was an, that was an uncharacteristic act of judgment on his part. Of course, he was, it was symbolic of the fruitlessness of the nation of Israel, symbolized by the fig tree. Then, as he did for the first three days of the Passion Week, as soon as he got into Jerusalem, he headed straight to the temple and what did he do there for the second time in his earthly ministry he cleansed it of all the filthiness and corruption going on there again that was an uncharacteristic act of judgment he was again you know judging symbolically the nation for her corruption that even went on in the temple under the authority of the religious ruler. So, Sunday was his day of presentation. Monday was his day of demonstration. Now, then we came to Tuesday. And we have been in Tuesday for a long time, and we will continue to be in Tuesday for a long time. Why? Because it is the busiest recorded day in the earthly life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Tuesday was his day of confront confrontation. He again, you know, Monday night after he cleansed the temple, he retreated back to Bethany, spent the night there. Next morning, again, got up early with his disciples. And as they passed through Bethpage, they were astonished to notice that the fig tree had already completely withered and died. And he talked about that to them and in faith. And then he went on to Jerusalem and went straight to the temple. And then bing, 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 four Attacks in a row by the religious rulers, right? Definitely was a day of confrontation for him. I'm not sure if this is one of your homework questions um, for this week or if it's for next week, but you are going to be asked about the names of the day. So we had day of presentation, day of demonstration, and day of confrontation. So now as we continue our look in this new year at the events of the life of the Lord on Tuesday, of the Passion Week, we come to event an event that must have been for the Lord Jesus, like a refreshing oasis in the midst of a dry desert. He had just finished four confrontations with the religious rulers in which he utterly defeated them, didn't he? So, so well defeated them that it says no one dared to ask him a question after that. 
And then he had asked them a question of his own, which proved that he was not only the son of David, but the son of God. And then what had he done after that? Remember, right before we broke for our break, we discussed lessons 128 and 129. He gave them the denunciation discourse. He had just finished his final public sermon in which he had judicially dealt with the pride and the hypocrisy of the scribes and the Pharisees. We could call it not only the denunciation discourse, but the woe discourse, the woe sermon. He had just finished that. And uh, so the, the scribes and the Pharisees and the other religious rulers were a tremendous source of anguish and misery to the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ, wouldn't you say? Yeah, if anyone should have known who he was, it should have been them. So they, they just had to grieve his heart. But now, in stark contrast, a poor widow appears on the scene, and she becomes for Jesus on this very awful day of confrontation. She becomes for him a source of great encouragement and joy. She becomes a source of joy for Jesus. Isn't that what you want in your life? Pray, Lord, make me a source of joy for Jesus. I want to be someone that, that he just delights in. And she, she just had to uplift his spirit so much by what she did. Not only her, but remember, I don't know if you remember this, but when I, before we got into Tuesday, I told you that Tuesday was going to be a very difficult day for the Lord. It's a day of confrontation because not only did he have those four consecutive attacks from the religious rulers, but later Tuesday night when he does again go back to the house of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, do you know what happens? His disciples have a confrontation with one another over who is the greatest. And then they have another confrontation, which is precipitated by Judas Iscariot, who gets upset that Mary um, pours out upon Jesus her expensive spikenard perfume. And he says, what a waste. And then the, all the other disciples chime in and say, yeah, that was a terrible waste. So it's, a, it's an awful day of confrontation for the Lord, not only from the religious, his religious enemies, but from his own men. And yet in the midst of that day, the Lord God sent to his son two special women to, give, to be sources of joy and encouragement for him. And who were they? First of all, they were this widow woman who gave all that she had, her two meager mites, and we'll be talking about that, uh, for the work of the Lord. And then Mary of Bethany, of course, who also gave the best that she had to anoint the Lord with her expensive spikenard perfume. So all, all of us women say, yes, right? Yes, women. <laughs> Sometimes it's really nice to be a woman. There were special women in the Lord's life, and these, are, these were two of them on Tuesday. So this widow woman, she was like a beautiful rose in the midst of a weed, a field of weeds. Her sacrificial giving gladdened, had to have gladdened, the sacrificial heart of he who was about to give his all, not only for her, but for you and I, for all the rest of the world as well. Today's message is a message on giving from, from the greatest, the most sacrificial giver of all, the Lord Jesus Christ who definitely gave all he had, didn't he, for you and I. He didn't have to do it, but he did. It's a text on what sacrificial giving is really all about. It's a very convicting lesson. I promise you, you won't leave here today without being convicted. I was very convicted by this lesson. Um, and this wo woman's name, she's kind of like, uh, um, she reminds me sort of of the... the um, the other woman who anointed the Lord's feet with her tears, she had been a prostitute. And that was a bad day for the Lord. She, he was at Simon the Pharisee's house, and Simon had just invited him to eat there because he wanted to find something wrong to criticize. And then this woman came in, and she fell at the Lord's feet, and she anointed her, his feet with her tears and her long hair. But we don't know what her name was, do we? We don't know what this widow woman's name was. It's like the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. Remember, the Lord was tired and thirsty when he sat down at Jacob's well there in Samaria. But after she came along and, and she accepted him as the true Lord and Savior, he didn't even feel his hunger or thirst anymore. She was a source of joy for Jesus, too. And then there was the Syrophoenician woman. 
We don't know her name. We know that she was Syrophoenician, but we certainly don't know her name. She's the only woman in the Bible who was commended for her great faith. She came along. None of these were coincidences. They were all divine appointments, weren't they? But she was in the Lord's life at a time when he really needed some uplifting. And uh, so this woman's name isn't given to us, this widow. And yet she has a prominent place in the Bible's Hall of Fame and has become one of the best-known women characters in the Lord's life. Actually, we could say that she, along with the other unnamed women in the Lord's life, she represents all the unnamed and unnoticed saints of God who give sacrificially both of their time and their talents and their spiritual gifts and their finances for the work of the Lord here on earth. She represents those who, because they love the Lord Jesus Christ, they obey him. By, by serving him unselfishly. She represents the remnant. There was a remnant of true believers in, in Israel at the time of the Lord Jesus Christ. She represents that remnant. Now, what, has, what was this widow known for? Her giving. Exactly. She gave just two, two meager, meager mites. Not, not a little insect mite, <laughs> but a mite was a, um, the lowest coin that they had in Israel at the time of Christ. And it was worth only one-eighth of a cent. Some commentators said each one of those mites was an eighth of a cent, but others said that two of them together was an eighth of a cent. doesn't really matter. Whatever it was, it was minuscule. Today, people don't even bother with pennies, do they? There's a penny. I don't even think a penny can buy a bubble gum anymore. You know, I used to like pennies because I could buy bubble gum, but pennies isn't even hardly worth bothering with. But an eighth of a penny? That, and that's all she had, and she gave the eighth of a penny, the two months, to the Lord. That's what she's known for. And, um, but because it was all she possessed, she earned the Lord's commendation because she was a woman of great spiritual might, power, great spiritual power to give all that she had. And so on a play on words, I've entitled our lesson, The Widow's Might, and I spelled it M-I-G-H-T. Our outline today is very, very simple. We're going to look at Jesus sits, Jesus sees, and Jesus speaks. That's simple, isn't it? That was easy to come up with. He sits, he sees, and he speaks. So let's look, first of all, at Jesus sitting. And for this, I'm just going to read the very first part of verse 41 in Mark 12. Mark 12, just first few words there of verse 41, where it says, And Jesus sat <laughs> over against the treasury. After all of the Lord's uh, difficult dealings with the scribes and the Pharisees, which we did take a long look at in our previous two lessons that were taken primarily from Matthew chapter 23, Mark tells us here that Jesus sat down where? He sat down over against the treasury, which means over there near the treasury or in the treasury. Now, this is where if you do have a map to look at, the treasury was located... <clears throat> In the second court of the temple, what was the first court, the outer court? The big, huge court, court of the Gentiles. Okay, the court of the Gentiles is where he had been so far on this Tuesday. He's been in the court of the Gentiles, and that's where he's had all the confrontations with the different sects of, of Israel's religious rulers, and uh, that's where he gave the denunciation discourse. Well, apparently after he finished that woe sermon, he was weary and he went up, he would have gone up a flight of stairs between the outer court of the Gentiles and the court, the temple proper. And the first court in the temple proper is the court of the women, which is also known as the temple treasury or the court of the treasury. There's steps that would lead up from the court of the Gentiles into the court of the women. He would climb those steps and then he went into the court of the women or the treasury and sat down in there somewhere. It is the only place within the temple proper where sitting was permitted, was in the court of the women or the treasury. They're one and the same. He sat down there. Why? Well, he was weary. In his humanity, he was weary. It had been a long day so far. He has a long way to go before the day is over, but, but he, wanted, he wanted to sit down, and he sat down. He had probably gone through. The, there's nine, 
nine gates around the temple proper. And he probably went through the beautiful gate. They think that that is the beautiful gate, went into the beautiful gate to get into the court of the women. Now, along the walls of the court of the women, under the colonnades which surrounded the court, there were 13 brass chests, or what they called alms boxes, with inscriptions written upon each one of those 13 chests to indicate to what, uh, what use the offering placed within that particular chest was allotted. Some of the chests were allotted for off, you know, offerings that went toward past neglect. I'm not sure what that means. It must mean that if you hadn't paid your tithes and offerings in the, the past year, um, you, you put your tithes in that chest of past neglect. Then there were others that were designated for certain sacrifices. Some were designated for the purchase of wood or incense and others for such gifts that were needed to keep the temple running. Now, attached to these chests, you know, just picture a big wooden box, okay? And it'd be pretty big, maybe like, you know, like this pulpit here or something. But attached to the top of them were brass trumpet-shaped shoots. So from this pulpit here would come up this brass-shaped shoot. Like, do you remember in the old Kmarts and... Maybe you've even seen some in Walmart, I don't know, but I haven't seen one lately, but they'd have those great big charity receptacles that were trumpet-shaped and sometimes they were bright yellow or white, and the kids always wanted you to give them a penny so they could watch the coin go down, down, down. Well, that's what these alms chests were like, except that the big brass, and it was wide at the top because you remember now, there's two or three million people there in Jerusalem at the time of the Passover. And, um, and the court of the women was so big, it doesn't look that big when you look at a little map, but it was so big that it could actually um, house 15,000 worshipers. So if you had to stand in line to put your offering in a box with a little slot, those lines would be terrible, wouldn't they? So they made the opening of the chute big so people could throw in their monies and the lines would move very fast. But um, what was I saying? They were, they were brass-shaped. And do you know what the Jews called them? Of course, they didn't call them alms boxes because that's English and they didn't speak English. They called them... Do you know what the Hebrew word for trumpet is? They, they called them trumpet boxes because they were shaped like a trumpet. But what's the Hebrew word for trumpet? You all know it, but you can't remember you know it. Shofar. Yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> they called them shofar, the shofar um, chess. Actually, shofareth in Hebrew is what they referred to them. Now, hypocritical givers. Not everybody wasn't a hypocritical giver, but a lot, a lot of the scribes and Pharisees were hypocritical givers. They, what they would do is they would openly and they would ostentatiously throw in large amounts of money all at once. And they didn't have paper money. They didn't have printers. What kind of money did they have? Coin money. So they'd take a big bag of coins and throw it in these brass trumpet-shaped receptacles, and what would happen? Clang, 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 you know, make a whole lot of noise. And then everybody would turn to look, who has given so much money? And they would get the praise of men, wouldn't they? And that is where, literally, where the expression sounding one's own trumpet came from. They were sounding their own trumpets. You remember what Jesus warned against in the Sermon on the Mount? He warned against this kind of hypocritical, prideful giving when he said these words. This is in Matthew 6, verses 1 to 4. Take heed that ye do not your alms before men to be seen of them. Otherwise, ye have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. If you do it like that, if you give so that everybody notices you and you sound your own trumpet... That's your reward. That's it. You don't get any reward from your Father in heaven. He said, Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee. Now, do you get it? 
That's why he said that. Don't sound a trumpet before thee as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the temple and in the streets, he said, that they may have glory of men. Do you know what they did in the streets? This is unbelievable. But if they were going to give money to, let's say, some blind beggar like Bartimaeus, they would have this little guy, I guess, that traveled along with him and would blow a trumpet. do 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 Mr. Pharisee is about to give some alms to Bartimaeus. And everybody could turn. Oh, wonderful, Mr. Pharisee. He is so spiritual. And that's what Jesus said. Don't sound a trumpet before you in the synagogues and in the streets, as the hypocrites do, that they may have glory of men. Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But when thou doest alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth. Sometimes when you're, do you knit? Do you crochet? Do you cross stitch? Do you brush your hair, brush your teeth, drive a car? You don't even, your left hand doesn't even think about what your right hand is doing. Your right hand, it's just like breathing. When you give, don't be thinking about what you're doing. You're just giving, giving, giving. Constantly, our lives should be giving, right? Shouldn't we be living sacrifices, which is just our reasonable service? We should give just like we breathe and not think about it. That's what he says there. That thine alms may be in secret, even secret to us. I didn't even realize I was doing that. I didn't even realize I was giving. He's, and thy father which seeth in secret himself shall reward thee openly. Where? In this life? No. In heaven. When the motive for giving is self-glory and the praise of men, that's the only reward that the giver receives. He receives no reward or praise from God. Um, I told the women yesterday, I do like to watch the evening news. I like to keep up with what's happening, even though I hear it over and over again, sometimes the same old thing. But there's one channel in particular that I watch, and uh, there's a man that comes on who is forever, I mean, he's always telling about what he gives to charity, and he gives abundantly. And it's wonderful. I'm glad that he does. Um, But every time he says what he gives, I think, oh, you just lost your reward. You got the praise of the millions of viewers who watch you, but you just lost your heavenly reward because you're telling people what you're giving. Don't do that. Uh, you think I should write him? Well, maybe I will. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, probably. Uh, seeking men's blessings causes us to forfeit God's blessings. Mere generous, g- generosity isn't enough. You know, a philanthropist, that isn't enough just to give. That's not enough. The motive in giving must be pure and righteous as well. What is the Lord more interested in? The giving or the motive of the giving? The motive of the giving. The motive must not be for man's praise or for self-glory. It must be to serve and to glorify God because you love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The Lord doesn't look at what the hand is giving. He looks at what the heart, the mind is thinking while the hand is giving. So anyway, it was somewhere in the temple court of the women or the the temple treasury, right, over in this location. And those little squares, you probably can't see it, but those little squares are the 13 alms boxes that the Lord was sitting um, somewhere near these trumpet-shaped, one of these trumpet-shaped offering receptacles, and he was weary. We know he was weary or wouldn't have sat down. And uh, he was also weary not only from all the confrontations that he had had and from giving that denunciation discourse, but don't you know he had to be weary from the grief he felt in knowing that very soon his beloved Jerusalem was going to be severely judged and the temple in which he was sitting was soon to be left desolate. Next week, we're going to look at Matthew 24. And in verse 1, it says that Jesus left the temple. And you know what? That was the last time he was in the temple. He didn't come back into the temple again during his first coming. He won't be in the temple again until the time of his second coming. He knew the temple was about to be left desolate. That the Shekinah glory of God, veiled behind human flesh, 
was again about to pronounce Ichabod over the nation of Israel. He was going to go just like the glory of God left in Ezekiel's day. He was going to go out the eastern gate. He was going to go down the Kidron Valley, up the Mount of Olives, where he'll speak the Olivet Discourse, which we do start next week, and then never return again till the time of the second coming. He knew all that, so don't you think he'd be grieving in his heart over just knowing that? So that's why he's sitting there. And uh, we don't know how long he sat there, but we do know that ultimately he looked up. And for this, we have to go over to Luke because Luke didn't tell us he sat, but Luke told us he looked up. Luke 21, verses 1 and 2. This is where we go into the second part of our outline, Jesus sees. It says in Luke 21, verse 1, And he looked up and saw the rich men casting their gifts into the treasury. And he saw also a certain poor widow casting in thither two mites. Now, I hope you kept a little finger over in Mark, because I also want to read the rest of verse 41 over in Mark 12 and also verse 42. After it said in Mark 41 of chapter 12 that Jesus sat down, it says, and, and he beheld how the people cast money into the treasury and many that were rich cast in much. And there came a certain poor widow and she threw in two mites which made a farthing. All right, first of all, we're told that when Jesus looked up, he saw, this is in Luke, that he saw, he saw the rich men casting their gifts into the treasury. And then Mark tells us that he beheld how the people cast money into the treasury and that many who were rich were casting in much money. Again, some two to three million people there in Jerusalem at that time. That's when they really filled up those alms boxes. A lot of rich people came into town, and there was a lot of money given in the temple at that time. Greek word for beheld, which is in Mark's account, where it says he beheld how the people cast money into the treasury, that is a word in the Greek which denotes that he was much more than just a casual spectator. He wasn't doing what you and I would have been doing if we had been sitting there and we'd be looking around seeing what people were doing. He didn't behold that way. He, his beholding, his looking up, his seeing was with the penetrating look of omniscient God. What does that mean? He saw straight to the heart. He saw the motives of what was going on. He saw with deep interest and perception everything that was happening. He was noticing how the people were giving. And he was far more interested in their motives than in their amounts. Some people before they gave, probably looked around themselves to make sure that somebody important was going to notice how much they dropped into one of those receptacles. You know, maybe they looked around to make sure that there was a Pharisee or a scribe standing nearby who would see them do that, or a priest or a Levite. Others probably purposely threw in, like the scribes and Pharisees, uh, many large coins so that they would Again, make a loud noise and gain the attention and praise of men. Now, you know there were those who were honestly giving out of hearts of love that they wanted to see the work of God continue there in the temple. Many would give with the right spirit. But he saw everybody and he saw how they were giving. Even those who didn't put on such an open show of giving were observed by the Lord because he can read the heart. And so he, he knows how you and I give, too. How are we supposed to give? What does it tell us in 2 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10? You know, if you, if you sow sparingly, you're going to reap sparingly. But if you sow bountifully, you're going to reap bountifully. But how are you to give? Cheerfully and of necessity. To be a cheerful giver. Do you know what the Greek word is for cheerful? You've all heard this before. It's the word hilarious. <laughs> and I, whenever I hear that word hilarious, do you know where my mind goes? I think of, <clears throat> for some reason, I think of laughing hyenas. <laughs> and so we're supposed to give like a laughing hyena, you know, hilariously. <laughs> I can't believe I'm giving this much. <laughs> That's how we're supposed to give, cheerfully. 
Jesus is interested in how people give and he's interested in what they do with their money. You know what? If you tell me what a person does with their money, I can strongly suspect that I could tell you something about that person's relationship with the Lord. Don't you think? We could make a pretty, yeah, your checkbook will show pretty much. Now, but the problem with that is that you and I can be deceived. We can be deceived because we, we can't see with the penetrating look of omniscience like the Lord can. But Jesus is never deceived. All things are naked and opened unto him and to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. It says in Hebrews 4.13, nothing escapes his notice. The eyes of the Lord are where? <laughs> in every place, beholding both the good and the bad, the evil and the good. So the Lord sat there, and he watched the people cast in their donations, and the wealthy cast in their large offerings. He saw the things that the natural man never would have seen. He saw the motives of the heart. And you know, he is very, very concerned about why we do what we do. And that was the whole point throughout the the sixth chapter of Matthew, the part of the Sermon on the Mount. Remember when he was talking about not only the matter of almsgiving or tithing, but also the matters of uh, praying and fasting. He wanted to make it very clear in that sixth chapter of Matthew that he's not impressed with the external display of giving and praying and fasting like the hypocrites did. You remember the Pharisee in the temple who, who was praying and he was so ostentatious about it and he probably had his arms up in the air and was using loud, verbal, verbose language as he bragged about himself and how happy God must be to have a man like him who even tithes his garden herbs and how he was so glad he wasn't like that publican back there. And you know, remember what they did when they would fast? The hypocrites, they would, they would paint their faces with dark makeup and they would uh, not shave and they would put on their long faces so that everybody would, you know, so they looked starving to death, like they were starving to death and everyone would say, oh, they're so spiritual, they're fasting. Jesus isn't impressed by that. Where does he always look? The whole Sermon on the Mount was about the, the heart He's not impressed with the external display of giving and praying and fasting. He is interested in the inner motives of the individual who is giving, praying, and fasting. If you give to your local church or if you give to some parachurch organization or some uh, missionary effort, whatever, if you do that only so that um, you get a tax write-off, or if you do that so that others will think of you as spiritual, if you put you slip your tithing envelope in the in the tray so that hoping that somebody in the church, maybe even the pastor, will see how much you gave, you know, you just got your reward. That's it. <laughs> that's that's uh, not with the right motive. <clears throat> You're to give to the Lord. Why? Because you love him wholeheartedly and you are you want to be a part of his work here on earth. You want you your desire is for the furtherance of the gospel and his kingdom here on earth. So as Jesus sat observing people as they deposited their offerings into the various trumpet receptacles, he focused on, you know, all those thousands of people in there, and suddenly his eyes focus on one lady. The quiet approach of one widow woman. And both Mark and Luke refer to her as poor. Actually, there's two different Greek words used to describe her poverty. You only see the word poor in English, but one of those Greek words tells us that she had a very meager income. And the other Greek words Greek word tells us that she was in utter poverty. She was desolate as far as her income was concerned. And we know that because we find out she just gave the last one-eighth of a cent she had in all of the world. So his focus is, becomes um, concentrated on her. And we can almost imagine with our mind's eye that she would slowly and quietly approach the trumpet receptacle into which she was going to put her two mites. 
um, the smallest coin in use at the time of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can imagine, I don't know if this is true or not, if she was sort of ashamed to drop those two in. Maybe she was, maybe she wasn't, I don't know. But she would just quietly drop in her two mites and maybe even hoping nobody would see her. Can you, know, can you imagine if she knew that the very eyes of God himself were watching her that day? I'm sure she dropped those two mites. It wouldn't have a clue that you and I, some 2,000 years from that day, that moment, would be discussing her. That would have blown her away, wouldn't it? If she had known that people all these years would be reading about her and that she would be lifted up so high to all of us as an example of someone who gave sacrificially and that she is part of the eternal word of God. That is amazing to think about when she just quietly dropped those little two mites in. The very eyes of God himself were watching her every move. Now, as far as we know... Jesus never spoke a word to her. As far as we know, she didn't know, she does now in heaven, but she didn't know at that time that the Son of God had just seen her do that and that he then taught a lesson to his disciples using her as his example. I don't think she heard the words that Jesus spoke to his men. And yet what she did was so beautiful and so full of spiritual might that it has been memorialized forever in the eternal pages of Holy Scripture. I got to thinking, why do you think this woman was so poor? Wasn't Israel supposed to take care of the widows? Remember, we've discussed that before. Look at Luke. Are you in Luke? I don't remember where you are. But look at what is right above this in your Bible. The last thing mentioned in Luke chapter 20. Jesus was speaking of being where, beware, you know, woe to the scribes, beware of the scribes. And then he said, why? Part of the reason is because they devour widows' houses. Woe unto you for devouring widows' houses. And then the next thing that we read about in Luke is that this widow woman had nothing left but two mites. Perhaps she had been a victim of the scribes and the Pharisees who devoured her, and that's all she had left. I wouldn't be surprised to find out that that's true. They should have been taking care of her, nonetheless. Even if they hadn't devoured her, they should have been providing for her, and they weren't, or she wouldn't be down to her last little one-eighth of a penny. Uh, so his focus is on her, and, um, and she becomes part of the eternal word of God. One lesson we learn from just this much of this account is how keenly the Lord Jesus Christ observes, observes those things, both small and big, that are done here on earth, especially for his name's sake. Does he see it all? Does he see when you carry soup or stew or a little meal to somebody? Does he see it when you go and visit somebody in the hospital or make that phone call? Or, you know, you, don't th- you might not think that anybody knows. Or you do some behind-the-scene thing. You pick up some, some trash on the church floor when nobody else is around. Nope. And you think, you know, you just do it because your left hand doesn't know what your right hand. But somebody is watching. Somebody sees all of that. You know, if his eye is on the sparrow, his eye sure, surely is on us. He sees it all. And, you know, I got to thinking, too, at this particular time in the Lord's earthly life, couldn't you understand if his mind was occupied on something a little bit more important than a widow woman giving two little mites in a temple treasury box? Couldn't you understand if his, his mind was focused on his imminent death? He knew then from the beginning. He knew that in two days he was going to be hanging on a cross. What would, you, what would your mind be focused on if you knew in two days you'd be crucified? Or if in two days you knew you were going to die? Much less, you know, a a horrible, shameful, painful death like crucifixion. I would be so self-absorbed. I couldn't function. I certainly wouldn't be putting my focus on some little widow woman doing something, would you? I mean, because we're so self-centered. I just can't imagine. But but he he wasn't focused on his own death. And we could also understand and appreciate if he was... was, um, 
consumed with thoughts of grief and anguish over the tragic state, not only of the religious establishment of Israel, but with the spiritual condition of the entire nation, which would soon be facing severe judgment. You know, he had just lamented over Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You know, his heart was breaking for his, the holy city, the nation, and his own beloved people because he knew what was coming because of their rejection of him. So we can understand if his mind was on something else, and yet it was at a time like this when his mind literally could have been focused on so many other seemingly more important matters that we find him taking notice of a little pauper woman giving this one-eighth of a cent to the temple treasury. So what does that tell us? Nothing is too small. Nothing is too insignificant for the Lord to take notice of. Nothing we do here upon earth escapes his keen observation. No act is too trifling for the Lord to note in his record book. As J.C. Ryle, a commentator, said, he said, the same hand that formed the sun, the moon, and the stars was the hand that formed the tongue of the gnat. I didn't even know tongues had, I mean, gnats had tongues, did you? (laughs) And the wing of the fly. And then he goes on to say, uh, the same eye, I'm going to paraphrase it, the same eye that sees into the White House sees into the double wide. He sees it all, doesn't he? And how do we know that is true? Well, we know that uh, Jesus attaches importance to events in our lives, which may we may see as small and insignificant. We know that because he noticed and strongly commended the gift of one poor widow woman. So let's, what he, let's hear what he had to say now. This is where Jesus speaks. This is what he had to say to his disciples about this widow. So let's look at uh, Mark. 12 verses 43 and 44 it says and he called unto him his disciples and saith unto them verily I say unto you in other words this is important verily that this poor widow hath cast more in than all they which hath have cast into the treasury for all they did cast in of their abundance but she of her want did cast in all that she had, even all her living. Okay, we learn from the fact that Jesus had to call unto himself his disciples that he must have been alone while he was sitting there in the temple treasury observing the people giving their offerings. The disciples were obviously somewhere nearby, right, because he called unto them, but they were not actually sitting there with him. That's not very significant, but we just do notice that. And when they gathered around him, he must have carefully pointed out the widow woman. She must have still been nearby in the vicinity somewhere. Maybe she was on her way out and he pointed to her, or maybe she was over there praying somewhere. But he, she was still there. I don't think she heard these words, but he told them that she had given more than all they, and there was a lot of rich people there, all they who had been casting their offerings into the temple treasury. Now, on human scales, that isn't true, is it? That she gave more than all the others had given. That's not true on human scales. Her offering on human scales wasn't even worth collecting. I don't think an eighth of a cent could buy much of anything. But... You see, God uses an entirely different set of scales than what man uses. It says in uh, 1 Samuel 2.3, by him actions are weighed. He has a different set of scales. On his scales, she gave more than anyone. In fact, she gave more than all of them put together. And how is that? Well, it's because, he says, all the others had given out of their abundance, but she gave all that she had, every last bit that she had. For the widow woman, it was a tremendous sacrifice to give when she gave those two meager mites. She, she get, because she gave all that she had. She had nothing left at home. She had nothing left in her pocketbook. That was it. She gave everything she had. 
When Jesus stated that she had given all than the other donors that day, he was indicating that gifts given to God are assessed by the sacrifice made, not by their monetary worth. You see, men see what is given. God sees what is left over after giving. The widow woman, we are told, gave out of her poverty. The others had given out of their plenty, and they still had plenty left to live on. Now, the, the Greek word used in Mark 12:44 that's translated want, she gave out of her want. And over in Luke's account, it says that she gave out of her penury. That's just a, a Greek word that means she gave out of her deficiency. She gave out of that which is lacking. She was living a hand-to-mouth kind of existence. She probably didn't know what she, how she was going to have dinner that night. She didn't have any way to purchase food. And yet she was willing to give all that she had to God. You see, it's not what we give, but how we give. Her trust was not in her money, was it? Her trust was in her God. You see, she would have to trust in God's faithfulness and mercy to provide her very next meal for her. At the time of her giving, she probably had to choose between satisfaction for her body or satisfaction for her soul. And yet, what did she choose to do? She choose, chose to, gave, to give. <laughs> she chose to give um, cheerfully and ungrudgingly all that she had. She wanted, she'd rather have, she needed physical sustenance, but more than that, she wanted to give to her Lord. spiritual peace. More than her own body, she loved and wanted to obey her God. And she wanted to give him something that would cost her something. And that reminds me of another person, King David, exactly. In the Old Testament, King David was told to build an altar to the Lord. And when he went to Aruna to purchase the threshing floor from him, what did Aruna say? King, King David, you're the king. I, you can, I will give you the threshing floor free. Take it, please. Not only did Aruna offer him the threshing floor for free, but he also offered him the oxen for the burnt offering. And he offered him the wood for the fire. But David was wise enough to know that true giving to the Lord must cost something if it's going to mean anything. He knew it needed to cost something. So how did he respond to Aruna's very generous offer? He said, nay, but I will surely buy it of thee at a price. Neither will I offer burnt offerings unto the Lord my God of that which doth cost me nothing. She wanted to give to the Lord something that meant something. It cost her something that day to give to him. You know, I'm going to break for a minute here, but I thought it was very interesting. I always have this habit of comparing and contrasting. And I don't know why these things come into my mind because I never read them in the commentaries. But I think it's that the advantage that we have of studying the Lord's life chronologically that these things come to me. And they probably come to you as well. <clears throat> but <clears throat> this is the last time the Lord is in the temple in his earthly ministry. I just told you that. The next thing we see, he departs. And the temple is left desolate. So the very last experience in the temple in his earthly life is this experience with this widow woman who gave her all for the work of the Lord. Do you remember back in Luke 2 to the first time Jesus set foot in the temple in his earthly life? When he was eight days old and he, his mother and father brought him into the temple to be circumcised and you remember that there was a woman in the temple who was a widow her name was Anna and she even though Jesus was a baby had to be a source of great joy and encouragement to him because that widow woman had definitely given her all to the Lord as well she had been married for only seven years from the time of her virginity now, women got married really young. I would call them girls, 13 or 14. So let's say she's 13 or 14, she gets married, and then she, her husband dies when she's maybe 20 or 21, because she's married to him for seven years. 
But it goes on to say that she served the Lord in the temple day and night. Which means she must have had a cot there in the corner somewhere day and night. She never left the temple. She served the Lord in the temple, Anna the prophetess, for 84 years. Is that giving your all? I can't imagine. 84 years. So they figure at the time the Lord was brought in when he was eight days old, she was probably a minimum of 104 or 105 years old. Now to have served the Lord for 84 of those 104, that's a big percentage of your life, isn't it? So, you know, these two widow women bookended the Lord Jesus' life, his earthly life, in the temple. You know what that tells me about you widow women? You are very special to the Lord Jesus Christ. You are able to really give your all to the Lord, aren't you? Because you don't have a husband to distract you. (laughs) You know, that wasn't worded right, Frank. But uh, you could give your all because who is your husband? No, the Lord. Yeah, but isn't that fascinating? Again, I just I just thought that was so interesting. Well, God's scales. God's scales measure a man's gift, not by the amount he gives, but by the amount that he has left over after he gives. And is that convicting? Yikes. Very convicting. Man only sees what God, you know, you know, we're to tithe a tenth. And that's, that's what the Lord expects of us. But we're to be cheerful givers, so we're to even give above and beyond the tithe. Um... But this woman, she's an example because she was willing to give her all. And he doesn't expect that of us, but he does expect us to give our all as far as our lives are concerned, to be living sacrifices for him. But he, he his scales measure by the proportion of the gift, not by the portion. And that puts us all on an even playing field, doesn't it? Makes everybody equal. He also measures the condition of our heart, as we said, as we give. Now, Winston Churchill was a wise man in many ways. He said this, and think about this. I think I actually have you thinking about this in one of your homework questions. He said this, we make a living by what we get, but we make a life by what we give. Isn't that true? What do you want to be remembered by You know, when they're talking about you at your funeral? Wouldn't you like to be there listening? I sure would. (laughs) No, maybe not. (laughs) Maybe not. (laughs) But um, that's so true. You know, at somebody's funeral, we just had one of our beloved ladies in the Bible study die over the Christmas holiday. She's very dear to my heart. She's like a second mother to me. I have lots of second mothers, but um, she died unexpectedly. Of course, it wasn't unexpected to the Lord. But at her funeral, do you think they talked about what she earned during her life? I don't even know if she worked, but if she did work when she was younger, people talk about how much money she made or how much money she didn't make or what. No, they talked about what she had given. That's what I want to be remembered by. That's what we all want to be remembered by is what we give. You make a living by what you get, but we make a life by what we give. It says in the scripture, give, and it shall be given unto you good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over shall men give unto your bosom. For with the same measure that you meet, with all it shall be measured to you. Again, that's in Luke six thirty-eight. Now, I can't be dogmatic about this, but I would venture to say that the widow woman never again went hungry. I think somehow she had food on her plate that night. I don't know how. The Lord put it in somebody's heart to bring her a meal. She gave all that she had to the Lord, and I think that God intervened in her life and blessed her in such a way that her cup ran over. Because there is no way that a person can ever outgive the Lord God. That's not to say that you give because you want to get back. Now, there's a lot of preaching out there that says give to the Lord so you can have a new Cadillac. Or give to the Lord because then you'll get a million dollar check in the mail. That's not the right motive for giving, is it? You give because you want to give. You want to be part of the Lord's work here on earth. And you give because you love him for what he's given for you. 
But you can't outgive the Lord God if you give with the right motive like that. If we give, he gives back fuller measure. The cup's not only filled to the top, but it's pressed down like you do with brown sugar, you know. Press it down. You shake it so you can add some more. And not only does he fill the cup, cup to the top, but he even spills it over. I do that every time I measure brown sugar. Some of it spills over. <laughs> so it's extra sweet, my pecan pies, you know. But that's what the Lord does. Uh, he even adds more to the cup. So it goes over the top. You cannot give, outgive the Lord Jesus. To understand the principle being taught by way of the widow's giving and the Lord's comments on it is really to understand one of the great secrets of contentment in the, in the, in the Christian's life. Do you want to be content? We're commanded to be content. We need to be content. There's no reason that any of us never, ever need to be discontent, to be jealous or envious of somebody else. You see, the Lord was telling his men and all future readers of his words, like you and I today, that he's concerned with what a man is, not with what a man has. There's no reason any of us should suffer from envy or jealousy because another believer we think has more to offer the Lord than we do, maybe by way of finances or by, by way of spiritual gifts or by way of just natural talents or, or maybe they have more education than you do or more time than you do. We all have the same amount of time, by the way. Maybe not on planet Earth, but we all have 24-hour days. Why aren't we supposed to ever be jealous or envious of Well, number one, that's a sin. It's a sin. But also think about this. He does not measure what we give him by its portion, but by its proportion to the rest of what we have. Now, you may have a million dollars in your bank account. Good for you if you do. <laughs> uh, but if, if you have a million dollars in your bank account and you give to your local church this year, $10,000, what's the percentage that you gave that year? No, not 10%. 10% would have been 100000 You gave 10000 That'd be 1%. You gave 10000 of a million. You gave 1%. Now, some widow woman, not this one, but let's say another widow woman, because she didn't have anything, but another one has $1,000 in her bank account, and that year she gives to her local church... $500. What proportion did she give? What percentage did she give? She gave 50%. She gave 500 out of 1,000. That's 50%. The other person... Now, the world would commend the one who gave the 10,000, right? Might even get their name on a plaque in the pew. Shouldn't say that there is a plaque up here. I noticed earlier. <laughs> That's not to for what they gave, though. It's in memory of somebody. Let me set that straight, <clears throat> Mary. <laughs> but uh, the world would commend the, t the giver of the 10000 But the Lord would commend who? The widow who gave $500, which wasn't that much compared to the 10000 but it was 50% of what she had. And that, as I said, puts everybody on an equal level. This principle applies not only to financial giving, it applies to spiritual gifts and talents and time. One person may have many gifts. You look at the person, you say, oh, they're so gifted. They have the, I look at Terry and she's got so many gifts, spiritual gifts, administration, counseling, rebuking. <laughs> so organized. <laughs> And, you know, uh, but, but a person who might have a lot of gifts and talents may not be using them at all for the Lord. Right? You know people like that. Say, well, if only they'd get really committed, the Lord could really use them. Or maybe, you know, if somebody's got a lot of, lot of money, a lot of talent, a lot of time, a lot of treasure. I mean, I already said that one, but, you know, spiritual gifts, and they're just using them very sparingly. Just now and then for the Lord. While another person may, may not seem to be quite so gifted. Or maybe doesn't have so much money or has ten kids at home and doesn't have much time. But they're giving. They're giving cheerfully. And they're using whatever they have 100% in the Lord's service. So that, again, that puts everybody on the same level. And <clears throat> the same is true with how we spend our time. 
It is true how, you know, every man is given a specific amount of time to spend here on planet Earth. And what are we to be doing with our time? We don't know when the Lord's going to call us home. He has our day appointed. But in the meantime, we're to be, you know, one person might only live a very short life, but produce much fruit for the Lord. Jesus, whoever produced as much fruit as the Lord Jesus. And he was only 30, he was 33 years old only lived to be 33 and look at all the fruit another person might live to be a hundred and yet never never do anything for the Lord so it all you know it's all based on the portion not no the proportion not the portion the Lord's words about the widow teach us then that that he looks at something more than the mere amount of men's gifts when measuring their generosity he looks at the proportion which their gift bears to their total prosperity And he looks at the degree of sacrifice which their offering brings. Some who in the world's view appear to give very generously really are giving very meagerly. All right, let's move on. Uh, We also want to remember this point. This is important. Did you know this? The Lord God doesn't need our money. He doesn't need our money. In fact, he doesn't need our talents and our, our time and all. All of that, because his plans and his purposes are going to be carried out no matter what we do, no matter what our part is. But, but yet he allows us, he allows us to be blessed by being a part of his plans and purposes in our giving. So that we enjoy the blessings which accompany obedience and a participation in his work on earth. You know, we came into this world with absolutely nothing, didn't we? Except our DNA and a heartbeat. (laughs) And we're going to leave this world with absolutely nothing. Everything that we have by way of finances, creature comforts, gifts, talents, everything. The next breath I take up here, my voice box, everything we have is because of him. Because of his grace, you know, he, he is, we're just to be good stewards of what he has given to us, right? He doesn't need our money. He could do his work without us. Doesn't he own the cattle on a thousand hills? Doesn't, isn't he the possessor of heaven and earth and all? So, but we get a blessing when we join him in his work. And there is going to one day be an accounting, isn't there? One day there's going to be an accounting. We'll see this as we get into the Olivet Discourse with the parable of the talents. We've also seen it already with the parable of the pounds. You know, as the the master went away into a far country, he entrusted his servants with pounds and talents. And then he came back and they had to give an accounting of what they had done. And he said, good and faithful servants, you know, enter thou into the joy of the Lord to the ones who had at least done some investing with their talents. That's not speaking of that I can draw talent. It was money. But uh, the one who buried his talent into the ground... And the guy who wrapped his pound up in a napkin, he he didn't get to hear those words, did he? What did he hear? Thou wicked and slothful servant. He expects us to be good stewards of that which he has entrusted to us. The widow woman who gave her two mites was like a servant who was only given one talent. Actually, she was like a servant who was only given one-eighth of a talent. She wasn't given much at all. And yet, instead of burying it in the ground for safekeeping in the event of a needy day, as the unprofitable servant had done, what did she do? She was facing a needy day right then and there. And yet, she invested all her meager earnings into the Lord's work. She cast herself upon God to take care of her because she knew the great principle that God takes care of those who give all that they are and all that they have and all that they ever hope to be to him. And therefore, she earned a very favorable commendation from the lips of Jesus himself. No one better to receive a commendation from, is there? than the lips of Jesus Christ. And she earned a commendation that has inspired many to give sacrificially to the work of Christ and the furtherance of the gospel message, including you and I today. I hope she served to be an inspiration to you. Of all the people on the face of planet Earth, of all the people, who, who should be as generous as Christians? 
you know, we should be the most generous giving people of all. Because all that we have, we know. Now, the rest of the world won't acknowledge this, but we know that everything we have is only due to the free gift of God's grace. The word of God, the living word, the written word, Jesus Christ, the wonderful, precious Bible we hold in our hands, salvation, uh, the indwelling presence of God, the Holy Spirit, the wonderful, blessed hope we have of the rapture, which could happen at any one time, the joy, the peace, the love, the assurance of eternal life. And I could go on and on. All of those things are undeserved gifts, right? We don't. We didn't do anything to deserve them. They're undeserved gifts which the world does not possess. So surely we who so richly possess such magnificent gifts ought to be ready and willing constantly to to give, to give freely. A giving Savior surely should have giving followers, right? Remember what the Lord said to his disciples when he sent them out for that first mission venture alone, when they went out in pairs, two by two? Remember in the ordination sermon, he said to them, freely ye have received, freely give. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this lesson that you have taught to us by one very, very faithful sacrificially giving unnamed widow who gave to your work out of a fully surrendered heart of love and devotion to the point of personal sacrifice. Just like Mary's alabaster box of perfume which she lavishly poured out on you, Lord. This widow's two meager mites speak to us of of self-denying sacrifice. And I would pray, Father, that, that you will open our eyes and awaken our hearts so that we too are stirred up with a spirit of giving wholeheartedly and sacrificially, not only of our treasure that you've entrusted to us, but of our talents and of our spiritual gifts and of our time as well. Let us each do our reasonable service for thee, which is to be your living sacrifices. May we give generously and ungrudgingly to the work of your kingdom here on earth. May we give as those who moment by moment remember that, that the eyes of the Lord are upon us, that you see even the minutest of details, and that you, you know not only what we give, but you know how much we keep back, and that you know the heart attitude of our giving. And above all else, Lord, may we give as followers of he who gave his all for us ought to give. May we give freely. And we pray these things in the blessed name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.